So we're in this Gospel of John series, and uh, if you're following along at home or here in the room, we'd love for you to go ahead and turn to uh, the Gospel of John starting in chapter 2. And obviously we're not going to be able to go through every single uh, verse, every single line uh, in this Gospel, but we're going to look at a lot of it. And we're going to pick up this story and, uh, and that John is telling about Jesus starting in chapter 2. So in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, There they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. Now, this is a story that you may be familiar with. This is a, uh, an incredible story. We read about this in John, and it's unique here. Uh, but so far in this story, what we've found, and I'm calling it a story not because it's fanciful or because it's not true. It's a story because John is clearly laying out a story here. He is intentionally telling this account of Jesus. He's intentionally telling. It's not just the events that happened necessarily as they happened. It's saying, I am telling you this for a reason. See, in the beginning here of this chapter 1 that we talked about last week, John is asking all of us to ask ourselves a simple question. He's kind of forcing us to ask, do we know the source of all things? And this really, you know, incredible language, this evocative language, John lays out that, that Jesus is God come to earth, that Jesus is the thing behind the thing. He is the source of everything. He is the one thing that is there before everything. Jesus is God come to earth. Now maybe you read the bulk of the the balance of chapter one this week and you saw after how John uses this imagery and this this wordplay and this metaphor and this incredible statement of who Jesus is, we begin to read about John the Baptist, not the author, but John the Baptist who is causing quite a stir. We read about how the Pharisees, this this group of very legalistic, moralistic scholars, come out to see what John the Baptist is up to. They they come and they see and they kind of they kind of say, Who are you? And John the Baptist introduced himself by by quoting something from Isaiah saying that he is the voice in the wilderness crying out. He is the one crying out to make straight the paths of the people for the Lord. Now, John the baptizer has his own following of disciples, and he's baptizing people who are recommitting their lives, who are saying that, I am going to follow God. And yet, John the Baptist has always pointed people towards something else, something greater. John the Baptist talks about the Lamb of God coming, which is a very odd and, and, and interesting line and something that's not been said before. This is, this is crazy talk. 
This idea that God would have a lamb, that God would be a lamb, a lamb that would be sacrificed to take away sins from everyone. And from there we read how Jesus begins calling his first disciples, including some that have been following John the Baptist. We read of one of two of these disciples who are walking along with John the Baptist, see Jesus coming, they ask him a question, and they immediately start following Jesus. One of these disciples is named, and we learn that he is Andrew. Now, these, these disciples that follow him, one is, one is Andrew, who's Peter's brother, and the other is unnamed. And I love that Jesus calls them and invites them to simply, essentially come and see for themselves. When we talk about the pathway here at Movement Church, that first step is a come and see step. Connect, see what's going on. This is modeled after this. And personally, I think the other disciple in the story with Andrew, the one that goes unnamed, is John the author. And that, that's a lot of conjecture, that's a lot of reading between the lines, that may not be true, but I believe it is to be true, because if you are writing a gospel with the express intent, as he told us, he tells us at the end of John chapter 20, so that you may believe, John is writing this so that you may believe, you know that if you want someone to believe something, you talk about your experiences with it. Everything we see here is that John is giving us his perspective. I think John, the author, the disciple, is the unnamed one here with Andrew. And if you're in over your head, as we talked about last week, if John's kind of been thrust into this position of leadership where he was the youngest disciple, he's looking around and saying, I'm it, I'm what's left. I think John is telling this story. Because in this story, we're, we're kind of called into it. We're kind of, kind of asked to say, what would we do here? How would we participate in this story? What would our actions be? And so then chapter 2, we jump into this wedding. Now, this wedding has been a kind of a community affair. Think of it this way. It's not just a invite the family and friends. It's invite the town. It's invite the village. If you can afford it, you invite everyone around you. And they come, and, and maybe the Mary is kind of like the caterer, or she's somehow involved in this. We don't know a lot about this wedding other than Mary, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples are there. And I'm always struck with how Mary goes to Jesus when the wine is running out, right? I've always, always kind of been struck by this. Like, she knows, right? And he has this, I've always found a kind of odd response, like, woman, you know, it's not my time kind of thing. But, but I wonder if Mary, besides, you know, an angel visiting her while Jesus was in her womb, besides the incredible, miraculous nature of his birth, besides all that, I wonder if she also knew some other things about Jesus, or she suspected. I wonder if Jesus kind of performed some, some miracles just for his household with food or, or what have you. There's these extra canonical gospels, meaning these are things that were written well after that kind of first generation when we find Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John written. And what we find in these gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, these, these names that would be attached to it by people, not Peter, who was writing it, is that there would be these extra stories that wouldn't quite fit. Some of it would, but a lot of it was just kind of weird and out there. There's this one story in one of these extra Gospels that doesn't, isn't really authentic about Jesus as a boy who's with his father Joseph, and there's, there's some sort of construction project going on, and there's a board, there's a piece of lumber that's been cut too short. And Jesus, the boy, performs this miracle stretching out this board. I, I kind of like to think that actually happened. I don't know if it did or not, because I don't know about you, but I've, I've, countless times I have not measured twice and not cut once, right? And you know, I've had to cut and then cut and then cut and then throw it away and start over and then cut and cut and cut again. 
I kind of like that idea that Jesus was was somebody in this spot where he was actually kind of making these miracles because Mary seems to know. Mary seems to know what's going on. And the first real details we get of the story are these six stone jars, these 20 to 30 gallon stone jars that are used for ceremonial washing. Now, whenever you read the number six in the Bible, you should probably pay attention because it's not that six is an evil number or, or, or a wrong number. Six is just one short of seven, and seven is often seen as a completion, a, a fullness, a wholeness. So six means that we're almost there, but we're not quite. Six means that we're, we're missing something. Six means that it's incomplete. So six here, we know that these are off. These are, aren't quite wrong, not, or not quite right. Not that these are wrong or it's evil, but it's just not right. Also, we see that these are stone jars. Now, this communicates wealth. This communicates that this person has prioritized this. Because for ceremonial washing, this process where, where this act of worship that the Jews would perform before they ate, they would often use stone jars because the clay jars, the clay would leach into the water, therefore making it unclean. So the, whoever's hosting this wedding is a person of means because they can invite everybody. This is a person who has prioritized their faith with stone jars. This is a big issue for the people, particularly the Pharisees in this moment. So whoever has placed these jars here is not just following the, the letter of the law, they're following the spirit of the law. They're wanting to go above and beyond. These people are faithful. Now, this is what ceremonial washing would entail. Now, it's not about hygiene. It's not about hygiene. You would wash your hands. You would get the dirt off your hands before you would do the ceremonial washing. The ceremonial washing, this was an act to, to have a message behind it. It was an acknowledgement that we need to purify our hands before we eat because eating is an act of worship because we are responding that God has given us everything. The message behind it is incredibly beautiful. There would be a process. You would do three pours on one hand and three pours on another hand. You would repeat a prayer of thanks and then you would be silent until you took your first bite. I love that picture, this beautiful act of mean, this act of worship. But like anything, this beautiful act of meaning, this beautiful ritual, it can become a barrier. It can become something that gives distance to things. I don't know about you, but growing up, we had to pray before we ate our meal. And I remember often, I'd be sitting there, and you can smell what's ever going on, right? You can smell that. I remember one time, my brother, we, you know, our dining room, our kitchen room, kitchen table, we had assigned seats, right? So my brother is right here to my left, my younger brother. And I don't remember what we had going on. I don't remember what, what it was, but it was my brother here, and my dad was at the head of the table right there. And we're praying, and I noticed, because I was kind of peeking too, and I could feel it, my brother's like reaching out for something. And all of a sudden, the table just jumps real big, because my dad just kicked my brother underneath the table. Sometimes these important rituals can just become something we go through the motions for. Sometimes these important rituals can be something that just gets in the way of what we really want to do. And in this moment, in this moment, there's kind of this other thing going on here. There's this other thing going on here where Jesus is pointing out, here's something that is beautiful but is incomplete. Here's something that is good but doesn't quite get you there. I'm going to see what I'm going to do here with this. Now, you might be thinking of well, ceremonial washing. That's not that big of a deal. It's not, it's not that big of a barrier, but it becomes one. 
Think about the people who follow this with exactness, like the host of this wedding, like the Pharisees who are also in this story. Think about something where we take the right mindset, we're kind of creating the right mindset, and it becomes something more. Let's assume all the various situations where you may not be able to have clean water. You may not be able to have this water drawn from stone jars. You are kind of having to bend the rules. Then what does that say? Or you're, you're away from home, or you're with people who don't practice this. What does that say about you? Are you able to worship in that moment? Something that is designed to be an act of worship can become a burden. Or maybe think of it this way. Let's try to put ourselves in a place in time such as this, where this story is happening. Try to put ourselves there. We, we are a Jewish people, and we are trying to practice this act and follow the law as best we can. But we look around, and we might ask ourselves, what's the point? We, we, we might say to ourselves, we need to follow these laws. We need to follow this way of worship. We need to honor God, because if we don't, God won't bless us. And then you look around and you say, well, this is God blessing us. What's the point? This time, I've talked about this before, there's, there's crippling taxes, there's the empire, the Roman Empire there, with just kind of just crushing the people. There, there's all these different factions and groups of people that will take religion and other ways of living and other alternatives and kind of make that into their own kind of dogma and their own kind of way of living, and it's kind of us against the world. How do we, how do we find ourselves in this spot? We say, how do we move forward? How do we improve this? How do we find ourselves in a spot where this could be better? I mean, think about all the different groups and the ways in which things have splintered and fractured. You've got one group that are called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are basically collaborators with the Romans. They are going to use religion to kind of keep the people in line, which the Romans like because taxes keep coming in. And the Sadducees are the, the, the dominant group. They're in the majority but then you have the, the vocal minority who looks at the Sadducees and says, you're just going along to get along. And this vocal minority, the Pharisees, will kind of cry out that they need to be morally pure. That, that the problem is that people lack faith, that people lack piety. And then you have groups that just cut themselves off. They just say, forget it, and they just check out. This is a group like the Essenes. And the Essenes are going to produce the Dead Sea Scrolls. They literally live out in the desert. They're very similar to John the Baptist. Some theorize that John the Baptist was part of this group. This is somebody, these are a group of people that are way, way out there. You even have groups that see violence as an option. You call them revolutionaries. You call them domestic terrorists. You call them whatever. But they call themselves the Zealots. And the zealots would be known that in the, the crowded streets of Israel, the crowded streets of Jerusalem, they would get close to a Roman soldier and stab them in a crowd and then slip away. In fact, one of the disciples, we don't know if he was part of this group, but he's known as Simon, not Peter, but the other Simon, Simon the Zealot. You see this life, you see this situation, and you see these ceremonial jars, you might want to ask yourself, what's the point of this? How is this actually helping how are things going to actually improve? You know, you've done the right thing. You're, you're doing all the things you're supposed to do. You thought you had joined the right group. But it's not working. It's not working. So what's the answer? Do we just withdraw from society? Do we turn to violence? Do we vilify one another? Do we just back the lesser of two evils? Do we figure out what one or two issues are that are the most important to us and ignore the rest? Do we just worry about ourselves and let everyone else fend for themselves? What is the Jesus way? 
How are we to move forward? How are we to live? How are we to extend and receive grace? How are we to make life better? How are we supposed to to rise above? How are we supposed to be gospel and kingdom-oriented people that say there is hope, there is is a point to all this? The people are asking that question then, so many people today are asking that question. And Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along. He takes these stone jars and he turns them into wine. Jesus announces a new way of living with about 30 gallons of wine, or 30 gallons times six. Jesus is God coming to earth, and he says, there's a new way. All these different fractures and different spots, I'm saying there's something better here. There's a new way forward. You might think this is cliche, because it kind of is. You might think this is not very practicable or efficient, because it's not. But the way things are, The way things are right now, the way things are, the tension that we feel, the the stress that we feel, the conflict that we feel, the division that we feel, the uncertainty that we feel, it requires us to step into something new constantly. It requires us to, to step into something new. Jesus comes and doesn't offer A or B. He offers something else entirely. What Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is saying here, is not that the the old way of doing things was wrong. He's not saying the old way of doing things was, was somehow counterproductive. He's saying they were incomplete. He's saying they needed more. He's saying that living with intention, living with a, with a desire to be moral, desire to be pious, those are good things, but that's not going to get you there. You know, ceremonial washing was something that would orient your heart to worship God. That's a positive But Jesus is saying there's something more. See, Jesus is inviting us into a fuller experience of how things should be. And the message isn't about morality, it's about receiving a gift. The new way of Jesus is is one of abundance. So often I think the basic challenge that I have to face is that, well, I can't let them have that because that means I won't have that. I can't let them experience that because then I won't experience it. This notion that there's, there's a scarce amount of goodness. And I'm not just talking about money or stuff, but this notion that I have to take it in and I have to hoard it and I have to protect it. But when Jesus comes and says, no, no, this is about abundance. This is about more. Jesus comes in and turns water to wine and says, there's something new here. There's something going on. So what do we do with it? How in the world do we receive this? I think there's two things that we see in the story that we need to pay attention to. The first thing is to do is that we have to admit that we are out. We have to admit that we are out, and then we have to take part in the party. The first step, admitting that we are out. We have to get honest with Jesus. We have to admit that we are out of wine. Not running low. This is not a dent. This is a total loss. Not not, not a minor issue. This is over. It's not a bruise. It's a death. Not a problem. A crisis. Admit that we can't figure this out on our own. We have to ask for help. This is the first step. We have to ask for help. At some point, Mary realizes there's a problem. Jesus doesn't step into that situation unless the problem is communicated. Jesus understands the problem that he steps into it. We have to admit that we are out. We have to admit that we are not doing this on our own. And the second issue is a little counterintuitive. Look back there in John chapter 2. 
Picking up the story about halfway through, we read this. It says that then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Jesus says, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is the party planner. Maybe he's the host. Maybe he's the one signing all the checks, so to speak. He is there and he is recognizing that he has to save this. There's been all these people come. There's all this expectation. And if this ends poorly, maybe his business is ruined. His reputation is ruined. We read on. They said they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Of course, the servants know. It's always the people in the kitchen in the back of the house. They know what's really going on, right? They know what to order. They know what not to order, right? They know what's really going on here. And then this, this master of the banquet does something I always find really funny. He invites the groom aside, the guy, because the guy knows exactly what's going on at this party, right? He's made all these decisions. He's been involved in this and that. He's got opinions about what, 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 and this and that. The groom doesn't have anything to do with this. But the groom is in this spot. He's just like every groom ever. He's more of a participant than a leader at his own wedding. And what does he do? He just kind of takes the credit. He just kind of takes the credit. The bridegroom's calls out to the part to this this organizer says everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much drink but you have saved the best till now what can the groom say but thanks what can the groom say but thanks you this is an incredible gift i had nothing to do with it Uh, you didn't have anything to do with it either but thank you for this in the same way we say thanks in the same way we say thanks we respond to this we admit that we are out we admit that we are we are bankrupt we are done we have nothing else what we have done has caused us to be in this spot to begin with we admit that we out and then we just say thanks we're out and we say thanks when jesus shows up now this is an incredible moment this is an out and out miracle Jesus doesn't hang around for the accolades. Jesus doesn't hang around for the crowds. He gets out of there. He says that he goes back to Capernaum. He says that he leaves with his disciples because remember, Jesus or John is writing this, and I think Jesus is doing all this so that we may believe, so that we may come to faith. Jesus isn't just trying to cause a spectacle. He's trying to say there's something bigger going on here. There's something bigger going on here. And notice that the disciples weren't necessarily in, in awe of the miracle. They weren't amazed at some sort of trick or illusion. No, they believed. They believed in a man who could do amazing things because they believed that God had come to earth. He was taking the old and making them new. So what are you going to do with this? You know this story? It's a story you've probably at least heard about where Jesus turns water into wine. And I just told you that what's really going on here is that, that Jesus is taking something old and incomplete and making it perfect. And I've told you this, that, that this way of living, this way of moving forward that Jesus is announcing here with this ridiculous, absurd miracle, what we are supposed to do with this, how we're supposed to respond, is admit that we would like some of it, and then to say thanks and to take part. See, this is the whole thing about following Jesus. As absurd as this miracle is of turning 180 gallons of water that people had washed their hands with into the best wine they had ever had, of Jesus essentially taking a party and blowing it out, right? Of people who were going to enjoy and revel in this. This, is, this doesn't align with 
with some of the misconceptions or preconceptions that we have about Jesus. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus comes into our world once we admit that we need him to. And he blows away the things that we thought. He changes what we thought was going to happen. He changes our expectations. And he gives us something better than we even hoped. See, I think so often I come to Jesus and I say, help me. Help somebody I love. Heal somebody I love. I come to Jesus and I say, I need help here. I need you to fix this. And so often I think Jesus is saying, okay, that's fine, but what about this? What about these stone jars that have been turned to the best wine ever? What about this? What about stepping into this life? When we, when we sell the gospel short, we just say, God, help us. I think we're fighting over things that are all old and all incomplete. I think we're looking for things that aren't going to get us there. And Jesus says, no, I've come for something more. I've come to give life. I've come to throw a party. All you got to do is admit that you'd like to come in and say thanks. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would show me how I can, on a daily basis, admit that I'm out. Admit that, the, uh, that it's broken. Admit that I need help. And then that you would take that and you would show me something new, show me something better, show me something that you want, that you have for me. And that, God, that you would show me every day, every moment, how I can just say thanks. Thanks for what you are doing and the ways in which you are putting things back together. God, thanks for letting me be at the party. And thanks for letting me take part. Amen. Amen. Hey, the band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a time as we take our communion together. If you're at home, we'd invite you to go ahead, take bread, crackers, juice, water, milk, whatever. In the room, we've got some cups, little prepackaged cups around the room on the seats. And we'd invite you to do this. I'd invite you to do this with us, that if anyone calls themselves a follower of Jesus, you're invited in, you're allowed, we encourage that. We'd invite you to take part in this, not as another ritual that just becomes routine, but as a celebration that life was given so that life could be received. A celebration that life was given so that life may be received. Because we believe this, that Jesus went to the cross and his body was broken. Whatever you have, wherever you are, whenever you're watching this, take and eat. In the same way, Jesus took a cup, shared it amongst them, and said, my blood will be shed. My blood will be shed for love. Take and drink. And Paul tells us, apparently this was a mantra in the early church, that when they would take communion, when they were done, they would have some sort of communal prayer they would say something to the effect that whenever we eat, whenever we drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We relive it. We remember it. We proclaim it because there is a huge party coming.